For thousands of years, religious people have been trying to figure out how to live in a world where people around them are not religious. This is especially true in times and places when the religious people that we're talking about are minorities. Let's say they're not in charge of the government or the laws of the land. They're not the even numerical majority. Many of you in this room probably feel this way today. How do I hold my religious views in a world or in a country that doesn't agree with many of the values I hold? So ideas are formed. Positions are made. Teachings are taught. If I were to give you four ideas, four options, I wonder which of these four you would most closely align yourself with. The first option would be to just separate from the world completely. Go hide in a cave, find a bomb shelter, stack it with lots of food, just wait till Jesus comes back or you die, whichever one happens first. That's one option, to live in a world that is anti-God or anti-Christian. Just separate from it. Option number two would be to compromise with the world. Try and keep as many views as you can without offending someone, but then once you start offending the people around you, well, then you kind of loosen up a bit. So it's a little bit of playing both. I'll have the world and my religious views as much as they don't conflict. Don't fight too hard. Option three, fight hard. Take up arms, overthrow the leaders, and establish new ones. Use guns, violence, whatever you can. Just get rid of them because your view is better. Option four. Live in the world, not like a separatist separates from the world. Live in the world, but not like a compromiser. Don't love the world so much passionately care about holiness and godly living. Don't be a pacifist where you're anti-war or violence in terms of standing up for righteousness. Be glad to see the government change, but that's not your primary purpose. Actively hope for the God for whom you believe will one day restore all things. There's your four options. Now, I'm sure there's more, there's caveats. Some of you might like, well, I want a fifth option. Well, just like your election, you've got two options for your president. You've got four options this morning. You've got to pick which one. I'm just teasing. You can write in whoever you want this election season. So which of these four options describe us, Embassy Church? What if I told you that if you decided, as I would kind of assume a lot of you, Option four, that sounds the best. I'm not a separatist. I live in the world. I'm not a compromiser. I've got a backbone. Certainly not an overthrower, violent person. What if I told you that if you picked option four, you'd be picking the same option of the Pharisees? What I want to do today is that right from the get-go, Help us see, hopefully admit, that you and I are often way more like the Pharisees than we normally think when we read the Bible. These were their views. Most scholars 
put the four Jewish views, if you want to put in kind of modern day terms, because Jewish people did not separate state and religion, government, politics, and their worship. They were, they were one and the same. So think of these as almost like four different political parties with their religious views attached. There would have been the Essenes. They separated. They literally hid in caves. The caves of Qumran have all of these different relics of them living in caves, hiding away from the rest of the world. There were the Sadducees. You might remember the Sadducees. They were compromisers. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They had different views, and they compromised with Rome. The Zealots were obviously the ones that were trying to overthrow Rome with the sword and violence. And then lastly, there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were about holy, passionate living. They were Bible-believing people. They loved God's word. They hoped in the restoration of Israel that through their holiness, through their obedience, God would eventually bring all things new. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? But because the New Testament, and Jesus in particular, is so negative when he's talking about the Pharisees, it mostly makes us feel like these are bad guys, and we're no way like these bad guys. They had a high view of the sovereignty of God. They believed in angels and demons. On and on we could go. There's a lot of similarities to the many people in this room and the Pharisees. It's probably fair to say, and this might seem scandalous at first, it's probably fair to say that Jesus, he himself was closest in all of these four options. He was closest to the Pharisees. Which is probably why you see only a few skirmishes with the Sadducees, hardly any with many of the Zealots, some, and almost none with the Essenes. They're just off in the caves. The people that Jesus was closest with were the Pharisees, so therefore you see that they're so close, but oh, so far. That's why they clash so much. The Pharisees look at Jesus and see he's, he's a lot like us. But he's not doing and saying what we're expecting. Kind of like think of a presidential candidate that's a part of a party, but he's not doing what the establishment are expecting. Does that sound familiar? Not trying to compare Jesus with Donald Trump at all. But I'm just saying, that's that's similar sort of idea. Somebody who's rising up in a political, religious leader position And the established leaders of that party are looking at him and saying, no, no, you're not doing what you're supposed to here. That's the context for our passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. I'm going to read verses 37 through 41, and then we'll look at that first section for a minute or two or three, or maybe ten, well, we'll see. And then we will look at the next section, verses 42 through 54 for the remainder. So there will be two halves of this message. The first half will be looking at 37 through 41, and I want to make the point about who Jesus is in this passage, that Jesus is the ultimate cleanser. Follow along with me as I read verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished 
to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus is the ultimate cleanser. In order to understand the context of this verse, not only do you need to understand who the Pharisees are, as I tried to summarize in our introduction, but you need to understand a bit about purity laws. Purity laws would have been a key symbol for these Pharisees in terms of who they were. So again, think of these four different political parties, and similar to today, there's certain key issues that make you a certain political party. And one of the key issues that made you a Pharisee was your food laws, your purity laws for ceremonial cleanliness. For example, the Mishnah and the Talmud are two extra-biblical explanations for how to keep the Mosaic law in certain circumstances. So if a woman was cooking food for her husband and she did not properly cleanse the food and the cups and the bowls, this would be grounds for divorce. That's a little serious, right? Most of you probably are thinking, why didn't Jesus wash his hands here? Oh, it's probably like, here they're already clean. This is not about hygiene. This is not about germs, although it may have had that benefit. This was about ceremonial purity, clean versus unclean, flowing from the tradition of the Old Testament scriptures. One rabbi was excommunicated, which means he was kicked out of being a rabbi for not washing his hands appropriately at a certain ceremony or meal. Another rabbi said that it was the equivalent of committing adultery for failing to wash your hands appropriately. And finally, probably the most crazy of all the stories, there's a famous story of a rabbi who was in jail, and he was given very little amounts of water every day. So he felt in his conscience, what do I do? Do I drink the water to live, or do I wash my hands and stay clean? He chose to wash his hands and died of thirst. Okay, are we starting to see that these guys are serious about these hand-washing ceremonies? The ritual cleanliness was a big symbol for who they were in their identity. Imagine it like this, kind of put it in our first 21st century world. Again, you have... No separation of church and state, so think patriotism. Think nationalism here. Imagine everybody standing up, saying the pledge, crossing their heart with their hand, and there's one kid sitting down not saying the pledge. There's a statement being made by not going along with this patriotic act. Imagine everybody's at a sporting event, standing and singing the star-spangled banner, taking off their caps, showing their honor. Jesus not washing his hands is equivalent to something like that. No, I'm not giving honor to these traditions. This is deliberate. In case you're thinking that maybe he just forgot, or it was a mistake, or anything like that. 
One of the reasons why we had earlier in the service the reading from Matthew chapter 15 is because in Matthew 15, it says that Pharisees came from Jerusalem to where Jesus was, I think at that point sometime around Galilee. So they traveled a good distance to tell Jesus, why are your disciples not washing their hands appropriately? Do you see what I'm saying here? Not only are the Pharisees really consumed with this idea and its importance for being a Pharisee, but Jesus is not just doing this once or twice, but he's also teaching his disciples, we're not going to do this. They accuse not Jesus in Matthew 15. They accuse the disciples and ask Jesus, why are your disciples not doing this? We know it's because you're the one teaching them. So they're upset with him. All of these ceremonial washings of the Pharisees are tradition. They're not explicitly commanded for the average person to do before they eat a meal. There are ceremonial washings for priests as they're going to make sacrifices or do things within the temple. But what these people did, these Pharisees, wanted to be extra holy, extra cautious, and said, well, if that's what the priests do, we're going to do this in our home before every common meal. And they made these traditions, and they kept them very seriously, as we have seen. So Jesus did not do this so he could expose not... That he is anti-Jewish, not that he is anti-Old Testament law, but that he is anti the way they are trying to be Jewish and obey the law. So again, fourth option about how to live in the world. The Pharisees' option was to pursue strict, conservative purity of these laws. Jesus is trying to tell them, you all are missing A key element here. It's not that your strict observance is bad. It's that as you focus so much on this, you're missing something so incredibly important. He's distancing himself from their kind of holiness, their kind of renewal and restoration, their sort of purity. Look down at verse 40 and 41 again. You fools. Did he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. His answer and solution to them is not, stop doing these cleansings. His answer to them is, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but you leave the inside filthy. You, as you preoccupy yourself overly with one set of rules, neglect the more important rules. So if you read Matthew 23 sometime later today, you'll see that these words in Luke 11 parallel Matthew 23. These woes in particular, as we'll see in a second. And on this particular section of inside and outside of the dish, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, you make sure to strain out every little bug, every gnat, to make sure your food's clean but you don't have any problem eating a camel. See the humor here? The the hyperbole here? You're making sure that no little bugs get stuck on your food because a gnat would have been an unclean thing that if it would have touched the food, now the food's unclean. Oh, but you'll eat an entire camel, which is also unclean. See the disproportionate here? 
So, many people read these passages and think Jesus is simply saying that the Old Testament is about external rule-keeping and the New Testament is about the inner attitudes of the heart. Many of you maybe think that right now. I want to help clarify that would be a very simplistic way to read this passage. I don't even think that's what Jesus is saying. If you look at the first woe, we'll get to all of these in just a second, but look at the first woe in verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now notice this next phrase. These you have ought to done without neglecting the others. He's not telling them to stop doing the tithing. Even though the tithing that they're doing was not commanded, it's part of the tradition, rue was not a tithe that was commanded in the Old Testament for these Jewish people. But yet, part of the traditions was, we'll tithe even the rue. So they're going beyond the Old Testament law, and he's not telling them, stop tithing rue. He's telling them, stop focusing on these external acts, so much so at the neglect of love and justice in your heart. That's the correction that he makes all throughout the Gospels, but especially here. Pursue internal holiness and external cleansiness. Do both. Now, I'm sure all of us in this room, we're never prone to traditionalism like this, are we? We start looking in at ourselves and start applying this to our own lives. Do we ever think that our traditions are more important than God's word? How many of you have ever been caught in thinking that you must give 10% to the church, otherwise you'd be an unfaithful New Testament Christian, even though that's never commanded even once in the New Testament? I've had plenty of conversations with several of you in the last two years that you have felt from other teaching you've received other churches that if you don't give 10%, that you are a sinner and you're disobeying God. That would be elevating the traditions of men over the very word of God. For those of you that forget, when we taught on this a few weeks back, a few months back, the Old Testament tithe was done twice a year, so it's 20%. And then every third year, it was done another time. So really, the tithe of the Old Testament Jews wasn't just once a year on 10%. It was 23%. Anybody want to follow that now? So to take tithe as the mandate for giving for all New Testament, New Covenant Christians is putting traditions of men above the very commands of God. The commands of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 say, in the same way that God, who was rich, became poor, so that you could become rich, because you were poor, generously, freely, not out of compulsion, in the accordance with your own funds as you can, give to the Lord. That's the command. From the heart, do the external deed. Notice here it's not, well, just give from the heart, and even if you don't give anything, doesn't matter. God just cares about your heart. No, no, give generously, sacrificially, cheerfully, from the heart, and actually give something. 
Anybody ever do Bible reading in the morning? I remember having a conversation with a young man who basically told me that he judges his spirituality on whether or not he reads his Bible consistently or not. So in other words, I ask him, so how do you feel like your Christian walk is going? Well, it's going pretty well. I've read my Bible every day this week. Then the next week, how's it going this week? Ah, oh, man, I haven't read the Bible at all this week. I'm, I'm doing really bad. Bible reading every day in the morning is a wonderful good thing, just like giving a 10% tithe would be a wonderful good thing. But is that commanded anywhere in the Bible? To read the Bible, wake up and read the Bible every morning. Friends, it's not. You're commanded to meditate on it day and night. You're commanded to let God's word dwell in you richly. But how could you command Bible reading every morning when nobody had a Bible for 1,500 years? It's not until the printing press happened that you and I have the privilege to read the Bible every morning. So therefore, all the more should we love and cherish God's word and read it not just every morning, but all day long, meditating on it. This isn't a matter of rule-keeping, that if you're a good, faithful Christian, you wake up, you read the Bible, and you start your day reading your Bible. Friends, if that's you this morning, you are becoming a Pharisee. You are putting the traditions of men over the commands of God and making too much emphasis of your spiritual state on whether or not you're keeping external rules rather than asking yourself, do I love God's word more today than I did yesterday? Do I long and desire to have it drip down like sweet honey for my soul? Is there anything within you that rises up to say, I want to see God's word increase and expand in my life and others? See, see that's a good testimony of whether or not you're growing, not, well, did I read my Bible or not? You could be a non-Christian, God-hating Pharisee or atheist and read your Bible every day, but you're not growing more godly. There's tons of people that give their time and energy as scholars who are liberal scholars that don't believe Jesus really existed, doesn't believe he resurrected from the dead, and they read the Bible way more than all of us in the room. Pray before meals. Don't watch rated R movies. Don't listen to secular music. Only wear long skirts if you're a female. Wear suits when you go to church. Children, you better be homeschooled or put in private school, etc., etc. Friends, are we not like Pharisees? Is our heart not prone to make the same mistake and focus so much on external appearances and rule keeping that isn't even from the Bible and miss the whole point of the Bible? think you should ask yourself again and again today throughout the week in your discipling relationships within this church if you don't have a discipling relationship talk to me find one speak with Christians regularly about your heart and whether or not that heart is letting go out of you good deeds and good fruit it's not one or the other it's not internal and external we get to pick one it's both it's been that way all through the Old Testament and now here made clear in the new through Jesus. If we're passionate about holiness, we will be prone to make the same mistake the Pharisees do by starting to let these rules trump the word of God. Some of you need to just start getting passionate about holiness. You're not even on par with a Pharisee. Compromising. More like the Sadducees. What is it for you today? You need to hear about healthy balance as you pursue holy living. You need to just start pursuing holy living because you're not. 
ultimately ask, where is your heart? And are you flowing out fruits of the Holy Spirit? Those fruits are not external actions, but those external actions flow out of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the measurements that we should start seeking about our heart and then see the actions that follow from them. Jesus is saying, I will not participate in this hand-washing ceremony and give you any, any thought for a second that it is okay for you to pursue external cleanliness at the expense of internal holiness. He is not about that agenda. So he calls them out. He does it both with his actions and with his words. You fools. Sobering words. Standing before them was not only the one who would expose their mistakes and their misunderstandings, but standing before them was the one who would eventually restore and purify, change hearts. I think one of the things that's not in this passage, but it's surrounded by all the stories in the Gospels that you need to understand is as these Pharisees are so consumed with the ritual purity laws of the Old Testament. So for example, this is one of them. It's in a collection of other stories where Jesus touches a dead person. Jesus touches a leper. Jesus lets a woman who has been bleeding menstrually for a decade or more touch him. And in each story, Jesus does not become unclean. What they don't realize is standing before them in that room, or reclining, more literally speaking, at that table, is the one who can't become unclean. He's the one who makes people clean when they touch him. This is the wonderful thing about this story, is that if you get it, you understand that Jesus won't partake and help them misunderstand that he is the purifier and the cleanser. And so that's why... People who are dead that touch Jesus become alive. People who are lepers become clean. People that have menstrual bleedings for years stop bleeding. He didn't need to wash himself. He was clean. And he makes people clean. It's because Jesus is the ultimate cleanser. So this brings us to our second point. We've got to ask the question, how? How did Jesus become the ultimate cleanser? And the answer is found as we read these woes. And the point, if you're outlining or keeping track, Jesus is the ultimate cleanser, purifier. Here, Jesus is the ultimate rejected prophet. In verses 42 through 52, I'm going to read these. Before we see the response of the Pharisees, we see a little response in verse 45. I want you to first realize as I read this, we've got to get the tone right. There's two kind of options. One could be woe, could be anger. Like, whoa, I'm angry right now. Another woe, and I think this is probably more in line with what Jesus is doing here, especially if you do what I said, read Matthew 23 later today, and read after these woes are given, what does Jesus say in Matthew 23? He says words of great compassion. I think these are the woes that are all through the prophets, like Lamentations, for example, where the prophets are weeping, where the prophets are 
And some translators put it, alas. Think, think of it like this. Um, you guys ever been around a father or mother or even your own mom or dad? And, and you kind of like, dad, I just wish you'd yell at me right now. That look of disappointment is worse than you yelling at me. Get that sort of context in mind. He's so utterly disappointed, sad, frustrated. Yes, angry, but more sad than angry. And so he says, follow along in verse 42. Woe, woe to you Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you have ought to have done without neglecting the others. Whoa, woe to you Pharisees. You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Whoa, woe to you. For you're like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Us is probably referring to the, the group of Pharisees called the lawyers. So not all Pharisees were lawyers, and not all lawyers were Pharisees, but this group of Pharisee lawyers, they're hearing Jesus' woes, says, Jesus, this insults us. What's Jesus say? Woe to you, lawyers. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one finger. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send the prophets, send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe. Woe to you, lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Let's stop there. First, he gives general woes to the Pharisees. We already read earlier that they're supposed to keep tithing. He's not upset with their tithing. He's upset with the fact that they neglected love and justice. So they're tithing their mint, but they're not giving to the poor. He says that you've burdened people with burdens so big, but you don't even touch with one finger to help them. You load them down. Contrast that with Jesus' words, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves and people walk all over them without knowing it. Now again, unmarked graves would have been, if you touch a grave, you become ceremonially and ritually unclean. And we know this ceremonial purity rituals are a big deal, right? We've already established that. So for Jesus to say, you're like an unmarked grave, which means you're like a dead person walking around, and when people come near you, they now become unclean because of you. 
Now we know why verse 45 says, uh, that's insulting. We're all about trying to remain clean, and you're telling us we're making everybody unclean? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And so he turns his attention to them. You lawyers, you're not exempt either. For you too load people down. And you guys will kill the prophet. And here at this moment is where Jesus, I believe, is prophetically becoming and fulfilling the last and final rejected prophet. You understand Deuteronomy and the way the Deuteronomy ends in the Old Testament? There's all these laws given, ceremonial laws, and then at the end it says blessings and curses. And then all through the Old Testament, what you find are all of these religious teachers for Israel and Jewish faith and the prophets. What they do is go back and they apply Deuteronomy to them and say, you have forsaken God and you have worshipped idols. And, and they start saying things like, woe to you and judgment is coming. So for example, I, I'd like us to see real quick an example of this. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. So you get a sense for what I mean by Jesus embodying and fulfilling the last prophet who would be rejected. If you're looking in the Black Bibles, 566 is the page number. I'm going to start reading in verse 12 of Isaiah 1. I want you to start seeing the spirit of Isaiah's prophecy, starting in chapter 1, and we're going to skip over to chapter 5 so you see more explicitly what I mean. Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You, when you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Are, are you starting to see early in Isaiah's prophecy the theme here of pulling these Old Testament ceremonial laws like new moons and Sabbaths and all these different offerings to God and saying, why are you doing these external things when you don't love the poor, when you're not caring for the fatherless, when you don't have any justice? Your hands are full of blood. That's the spirit of Isaiah. Now turn to chapter 5 and notice the very words he gives to Jerusalem. Verse 18. Woe. Woe to those who draw iniquity, iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come, that we may know it. Woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. You see Isaiah's prophecy? 
Do you think that these uh, expert lawyers who know the Bible inside out might have been familiar with the series of woes in Isaiah? Do you think they might have been familiar with the series of same woes in Amos chapter 5 or the book of Lamentations or Ezekiel or Jeremiah? The prophets said the same sort of things Jesus says to them. Woe, woe, woe. Look over one more page to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah gets his calling after seeing the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple and these huge seraphim creatures with six wings covering their face and their feet and flying, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, full of his glory. The foundations shook. Look at what he says in verse 5. And I said, woe. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What's interesting about Isaiah is Isaiah becomes woe to himself when he sees the holiness of God. What's interesting about Isaiah is that this compels him to serve the Lord. And he says in verse 9, And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah, he's the one saying, Send me, Lord. And this is the sort of prophet Isaiah will be. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What sort of prophet is Isaiah? The prophet who calls out external ritual cleanliness at the neglect of of internal heart love for God and justice and internal holiness. What kind of prophet is Isaiah? Isaiah is the prophet who gives a series of woes for the people of God and tells them that they are full of iniquity and sin. What kind of prophet is Isaiah? The kind of prophet who keeps on preaching again and again even though nobody's listening to him. What kind of prophet is Jesus? The last and final rejected prophet. In Luke chapter 11, if you turn back, you see the response of the Pharisees after Jesus gives his very prophetic-like woes, calls them out just like Isaiah and several of the other prophets did, tells them essentially, you're missing the whole point of the law. You say you're all about the law, but you're missing it. You're close, but so, so far. Verse 53, Jesus went away from there, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. I I hope that when we read passages like this, we don't make light of them. The gravity of these words, Jesus died because of these woes. Jesus was killed for these woes. See, see, the turning point throughout the Gospels is that he'll say or do something, and then you get these statements narrated, and then opposition rises all the more. They start in Mark chapter 7 after a very similar account about hand washings with the disciples. They say, then the Pharisees sought to destroy him. And we know the end of the story. We don't have to stop here in Luke 11. The end of the story is they did destroy him. 
these prophetic words of Jesus about woe to you and the blood of the prophets will be on you because you're going to kill God's last and final prophet, Jesus Christ. And so they did. For saying and doing things like this, for not washing his hands, for calling out to them, for missing the main point, Jesus died on a cross for sinners. And then rose again from the dead, triumphant, victorious, because he knew that the way to defeat the evil in our hearts is not to try harder, but to get a new heart. Because he knew that the only way that people could start living inside out holiness is if he changes and transforms their heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of the dead. And so Jesus became Isaiah. Woe is me. Not because he was full of unclean lips, but because he took on our uncleanliness on the cross died in our place, rose again from the dead so he could fulfill the promise that you heard of Ezekiel 36. There will be a day when I put in them new hearts and new spirits and I will make them obey my ways. It's not pick one or the other. It's not Old Testament's just obey external rules and New Testament's just about your heart. No, I will put in them a new spirit and a new heart so they will obey my rules. It's both. All of that was purchased through Jesus' death on the cross by becoming the last and final prophet that these Pharisees would kill, the rejected one. He came to his own, but his own disowned him and knew him not. That's the story. That's the story of Jesus. It's who he is. And that's now the hope for you and me. So we go back to the beginning where we started. We live in a world that does not embrace these things. They're not passionate about holiness for God. So what's our solution? Should we be like the separatists and run away? Should we be compromised like the liberals? Religiously liberal, that is. Should we get swords and guns and overthrow the government? Or should we find the right key to holiness? Oh, the Pharisees were close, but they missed it. Are you going to miss it? Are you going to get so close by attending church every week, praying, reading the Bible? doing spiritual religious traditions, but oh, miss the true heart change. Friends, the way to live in this world is to pursue a passionate, holy life in dependence on the Holy Spirit to change and transform your heart day after day by repenting of your sin, putting your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to wash and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. If you're trusting in yourself today in any way, you're just like the Pharisees. And I pray you wouldn't be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for these words of Jesus that led him to his death. What ominous words to hear him say, woe to you for killing the prophets rejecting their teaching. Exactly what they did with Jesus. God, we confess, as we already have in this service, that we are so easily tempted by our natural sinful hearts to be just like these Pharisees, to put tradition above men, to not long and cling desperately to the cross, knowing that our only help 
only hope is found in the cross and in the cleansing and in the blood of Jesus. So I pray, God, that as we sing these final songs and as we move downstairs to take the bread and the cup, that we will be reminded that there is hope for us. There is a way to live in this world, to be in it, but not of it, to be passionate for holiness and not a traditionalist, to accept traditions where they're good, but ultimately about, be about your word. Help us be that kind of church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To conclude our service, we want to stand and sing two fitting songs about the cleansing power of Jesus' blood.